something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Just we we rented somebody's basement apartment in a house in Bronxville. We had not much money at all, but I remember asking my husband and his cousin, who's like older and is kind of our mentor. I was like, "What do you think I should do? Is this crazy?" And he said, "Why don't you go for it? I'll give you a temp job in our office. You're good at Excel. I'm good at Excel spreadsheets." Okay. And so, see, it's not as glamorous now. <laughs> so, so I left Chanel and did. Part-time modeling and part-time Excel spreadsheeting. <laughs> Hi, I'm Stephanie Shostak, and I have more holes in ones than Brian. Three, that is, Brian. You have three holes in one. Hole, hole in ones? <laughs> is it holes in one or hole, hole in ones? <laughs> I don't know. You're the American one. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is Off the Beat, a little podcast you might know, with me, your host, Brian Baumgartner. My guest today oh, is Stephanie Shostak. She is amazing. She's a brilliant actor, and she has a story that I think is just remarkable. I mean, look, I have a lot of great guests on this podcast with amazing stories. But a lot of time, those stories start out with something like, well, I started doing this thing that I loved doing when I was a kid, acting, playing football, whatever, and I pursued it. Then I got to this place I am today. There are great stories. They take a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. But Stephanie, well, Stephanie did things a little bit differently. For one, she grew up in France. She moved across the ocean to the U.S. for college. Then she went to New York and started a busy marketing career at Chanel. And then long past her childhood or her college years, when she was 29, in fact, she thought, hmm, maybe I'll take my first acting class and see what that's all about. Well, next thing you know, she's landing some of her first roles in major films alongside, oh, Meryl Streep, Steve Carell, 
then she's eventually starring in shows like A Million Little Things. Now, I'm going to let Stephanie tell you how it all went down and what happened next, but just know this. She is delightful. She is a joy. I could not have enjoyed talking to her anymore, and I know that you're going to love hearing from her and all about her new role, if you will, as author in the mental health and wellness space. So here she is, the very charismatic, the unique, the admirable Stephanie Shostak. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. Well, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being with me. It's lovely to have you. By the way, uh, bonjour. Ça va? Bonjour, monsieur. Ça va et vous? <laughs> Do you je have parle... anything to follow up with? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oui. Je parle français comme un vache espagnol. <laughs> Pardon-moi. <laughs> Bravo. That is the hardest thing to do in a foreign language because I've been here for 30 years and expressions, idioms, I still stumbled upon them. So you just had a really amazing French idiom here. There you go. Have you heard that one before? Yes. You have? Yes. Je parle français comme un vache espagnol? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So here is the thing. I worked for a long time. By the way, everyone... Uh, she's French, in case you didn't know that. Um, Only half. Don't hold it against ha- me. Sorry, half. <laughs> well, so I worked with a full, with a full French director in the theater for a long time, and I had trouble in Paris. You know, I love the French people. I love it's beautiful. They're not always nice if you no. don't speak the language. And in fact, I'll tell this brief story. You, no one can see my me doing this. But it was pouring down rain one time, and and I'm even an I'm even an actor. I'm not saying I'm a I'm a great one, but I'm even an actor. And I go into a like a hardware type store. I don't know what they call them in in France because guess what? It was it was raining outside, and I could not remember the word parapluie, mm-hmm. which that I will never forget. Now that means umbrella. So I'm in there and I'm like, uh, and I start pantomiming the rain coming down and opening an umbrella. And the guy goes, ah, ah, it brings, brings me back a light bulb. Oh my God. Well, now, he was just French being, dick. he was just being a smart ass. <laughs> exactly. And so this, this French director said, you just have to try. And he taught me to say, Je parle français comme un vache espagnol, which means I speak French like a Spanish cow. And yes. without question, they would be like a, like a, a, and then they would laugh and then they would start speaking to me in English. Exactly. So I have a theory about that. Okay. If, if it, I'll make it quick. But no. my theory we is. We have time. <laughs> my theory is French people, the schooling in France, you have to understand, we're put down from grade one. Like you are put down by the teachers as opposed to America when you're like, you know, you're encouraged. Oh, right. You, okay, got in it. In France, it's like you're an idiot, you're ridiculed in school, all that. So we 
That's kind of how we are in life. We're afraid to make fools out of ourselves. And so uh, the, the second you make a fool out of yourself and speak French with right. comme une vache espagnole, we feel, I'm speaking for the whole country, we feel put at ease <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay, now it's, it's okay. I can make a fool out of myself and talk to you in English. That's my theory. <laughs> oh, interesting. So it's not... Rudeness. Being inhospitable, it's them not wanting to sound foolish speaking bad English? It's lack of confidence. Wow. That is the most protective I've ever heard of the French people. That is <laughs> that is that is a theory that is a theory that truly only someone from France would give. But well, I this like is gonna it. be fun. <laughs> no, I like I like it a lot. Yeah. Doesn't it make sense though when you're in it a does situation? Make sense. Yeah. It does make sense. But spoiler alert, Italy is right next to France. I don't know if you were aware of this growing up, but the Italians, that's not they don't do that. So are they given more based on your theory, are they given more confidence? Because they will, I feel like, go out of their way to attempt to, I don't know, get you what you need or like speak to you, communicate with you. Mm -hmm. That's my experience. You the could Italians. kill, you could not kill an Italian's confidence, even if you tried to. Oh, <laughs> there you go. You're, you're doubling down on it. And I, I, and I have family. My aunt married an Italian. My cousins are Italian. Right. So. And they're confident. And f the French are not, is what you're saying. I mean, look at our history. How could we be confident? That that was a joke. It's not yeah, really well. Yeah, exactly. I know. I I hear you. I but see, I paused because I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> yeah. going to go there. Yeah. I was. I was. I wasn't going to go there. Despite our no, actually, we don't have any different opinions. I I just I was taught why the French behave as they do by you, and that's very very interesting. I will remember that. I will remember um, that just as I remember that phrase from now on. You, yeah, and I've never worked. I'm very curious to hear how your experience was working in Paris in the theater because I've never worked on a French set or anything. Well, I will be honest. I will more. I will clarify. So I was I was working in the United States in the theater, but it was a it was a, a Franco American. I don't know, not Franco English, mm -hmm. Franco American theater company, Theater de la Jeune and. So half of the founding members were French and half were from the United States. They all trained in France at the uh, Jacques Lecoq. Uh, yes. Oh, there was some awareness. There we go. I read um, the book. That's, there, that's about there, it. But there, there you go. Well, this was a very, very famous company. And uh, they performed for a while in France and in America. They eventually just performed in America, but I traveled overseas with, with, uh, some of them to France just to visit and see their homeland or whatever. So, but they would, to your point, they would in rehearsals, et cetera, they would start speaking very quickly in, in, and I took, I took French in school. So I did know French, but I, I think I was always bad at it. I don't know. I was bad at, at foreign language. So I could understand pretty well, and but I could not speak it. So that's And you me, were French. in the Ecole de Jacques Lecoq? No, I oh. was, I was, so they're like 
proteges, I guess. They're some of their big students who who worked with him and the, you know went to the school and then worked with him. They founded a theater company that was in the United States and in France. So um, I'm uh, if it was Kevin Bacon, I would be like uh, two degrees, not one. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't at, with Jacques, but. Um, but yes, it was it was very interesting work, and they were very interesting people. And I truly love the French, except you know the language is a problem for me. So there you go. Um, but that's where you're from, just in Paris, right? You're suburbs, suburbs in the suburbs. Like, okay, yeah. just outside. Yeah. Um, well, tell me a little bit about about your childhood there. Now I I understand your dad, so you're half French. What's your yeah. other half? Half American. Half American. And similarly, you're half Jewish as well. Your dad was Jewish and your mom converted. That Wow. Yes. You've done your harm. Yeah. My dad's a Jew from Iowa. Oh, and your I- dad was a Jew from Iowa. I don't think there are any Jews in <laughs> Iowa. And I say that just based on, I don't know, my impression, I guess. Okay. So he was a Jew from Iowa. Yeah. And went to France. And went to France and stayed and met my mom and stayed in France. And so I grew up half and half and had an older brother. We grew up in the suburbs, sort of middle class, went to public schools, um, played golf. Yes. I know you're a golfer. I've done a little bit of homework too. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Yes. We're going to talk about that. Yes. So were you speaking... Were you speaking both English and French growing up? So my older brother spoke English without any accent. He spoke both. And I came along and I refused to speak English. My dad would speak to me in English and I would just (laughs) kind of like the (laughs) experience. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We all... We're in France. We only speak French. But so, I, the reason for me is I didn't want to be different from all my friends and the kids. And it felt like um, weird. And um, yeah, that's why now I'm stuck with a French accent. Right. Was it about like having other kids see that you were speaking in English or or you, you wanted to ha- also, I'm guessing you wanted to have a just a can you have a French accent if you're speaking French? I don't know. But speak, you wanted to be able to speak French like everyone else. Yeah, I just didn't want, I was very shy growing up and I didn't want to be different. I, I, my, I had a brother who was, he was my hero, but he was a big troublemaker. He got into drugs. And so I think I was eight years younger. I didn't want to rock the boat and I wanted to make no noise. And part of that was just fitting in everywhere I went. And that meant just speaking French. Right. You say you were shy. Did you have any sort of inclination or feeling about performing or entertaining when you were younger? Well, every time I went to the movies, I loved movies. And every time I left, I, I imagined I was this person on the screen. But I thought, Probably everybody did that, and I didn't dare to entertain it, the idea. And also, in the public schools, we had no arts whatsoever. So Mm. never took an acting class until I was 29 years old in New York City. Yeah, I, I had heard that, but now that is shocking to me. 
That is against everything that I would think that you had no arts in public school in France. Right? So no art, no music, no theater, no nothing. Nothing. In uh, in junior high, we had one hour of music, which was music theory. So okay. and, and the the uh, you call it the recorder. Right. And yeah. <laughs> and and then we had two hours of gym per week. So it was all just academics. There was no budget for any. I know it's it's you, you would think France and the arts, right. but no. You would no. You think culture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you think European culture. I mean, do you feel like growing up there? I mean, I you said you didn't want to speak English, and and you, you wanted to fit in with everyone. Were you? Well, were you visiting other countries? Were you exposed to other languages? You know, I mentioned Italy or Spain. Uh, Great Britain, were you traveling around? Because I feel like growing up in Europe, you do have a more diverse base of experiences and different peoples and cultures. W- was that true for you or? For sure. Okay. Because my, so first my dad's American and we came to the States every year to okay. visit his family. Sure. And then we traveled throughout the States, but then my mom married an Italian man. So I went to Italy uh, a lot. And then through golf later, I competed and and would go to, you know, Luxembourg and Belgium and uh, Switzerland. And you just, for golf tournaments, you take the train and. Now, all right. Now, how serious a golfer are you? Are you do you still play? Not much at all, but I, I do still play, but probably like six rounds a year. But I was very serious. Like I competed in I played college golf I You played college golf I did But I wasn't I was a five when you say that you imagine scratch golfer I was five handicap was the best that I ever got Yeah you know I do know from experience cuz I actually competed now that I think of it in France at a golf course never going to remember the name of it but I'll look it up. I'll send it to you. Um, so there was a, uh, they, they started doing a Ryder cup, American versus Europeans for celebrities. And I played in this and it was based in Monaco, Monte Carlo, Monaco, but that's where we stayed. But the golf course was up in the Hills of France. Nice. Who won? We won. I think. No, we won. We won. I have the so trophy. Do you know that I did? I, I did that too. I did you the did? Ryder Cup celebrity in Whistling Straits. Oh, you did it here. Yeah, and we won. <laughs> you did. Wait, this is crazy. Why were we not there at the same time? Wow. We have to do the night. They didn't have one this year in Rome, but next time is in the states. We have to. You have to get That's on. That's right. Okay, we have to do. That. We have to make this happen. But so you're, what are you now? Are you a, well, what I was going to say before is I know the handicapping thing, the way that they calculate it is different. I do know that. I don't remember which is yes more stringent. I don't, I, I just don't remember. So in France, your handicap is all, you only take into account your scores in tournaments. I mean, and I think it's changed now. Now, yeah. you know how here you just turn in your score you every round? You just turn in your scores. Yeah. Yeah. But now yeah. I All shoot, right. I'm a 10 or 11. I shoot, you know, mid-80, mid like 84 would be a great day for me. We should play for money. You're a five and I'm a seven. 
and then let's I'm not go a five. I'm a let's, no, you're now. a five. It, listen, I paste this on lifetime ability for you. So yeah, you're a five. I'm a ten, and we'll play a lot of money. Um, no, that I love that. I so what was it about golf that you loved that you responded to that you why did you why did you love it why did you play well that's gonna sound i didn't really love oh, i didn't really didn't love it, it. Okay. i was kind of you're just good at it no i was because i was born into it my dad was a scratch golfer okay we played golf because he he was because of his level he we were allowed to play in this country club in france and that's just what we did as a family. Um, okay. I like to ride horses, but I wasn't really allowed to do that. I had to <laughs> play golf. <laughs> but I'm so happy now because, you know, still playing like the Ryder Cup. I played in the Bob Hope. The last year it was the Bob Hope. Yes. Uh, my husband caddies for me and. He tells me who everybody is because I don't know who people are. And, and it's the best experience. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What brought you to the U.S.? College. Okay. College because we don't have sports, college sports, and we don't have liberal arts. You have to know what you want to do. You have to pick your subject, and I didn't know what that was. So I ended up at the College of William & Mary, mm -hmm. which in Colonial Williamsburg, which was quite a big culture shock to say the least, it was really a tough year. And I did my year abroad, my sophomore year in Paris. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait a second. That should not be allowed. That's not the point. To go home is not the point of your year abroad. But, Brian, I finished. I went back junior and senior. So I, in fact, did three years abroad and you one did? year okay. at home. <laughs> All right. Fine. You've, you've, you've done that explanation before, I can tell. Did you think you were coming here to get your liberal arts education and to play golf? Did you think you were just coming here for that and that you were going to go back to France? What was your, what was your plan? I don't think I had a plan. I didn't know. Okay. And I, I never really do have a plan. I think that's not, I just came because I took a year off after high school and then I was like, that's not really working for me. <laughs> Uh, playing golf. And I tried to go to school in France and there was no seats. You had to sit on the steps. I was like, that's not great. And so yeah. I was like, all right, let's try America and golf. Okay. And you didn't love it. This is so funny. I love this. Well, but you know, I and, and in a way, just not to be serious and all, but it's it's kind of how easily you can get sidetracked in your life and doing the things that you're just put into and you follow that and you follow right. that. And then it was not until later that finally I was like, I did the same with a job. I got a job in corporate America. And then eventually I was like, okay, this is not my life. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. 
And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So speaking of what you did not love to do, you your focus was business and, and marketing mm-hmm. in college, and you mentioned getting a, a job. What did you think this is what I should do? Work for Chanel in New York out of college? Or was there was there some sort of passion there for you at all? Well, I I've tried to get a job with a sports marketing company. Okay. And I got an internship, and, but it didn't get me the job. And I was temping. And then I got lucky and got a job at Chanel. I did, I did always love fashion. And it was a French company. I thought, oh, maybe I have something to bring to this. Or it felt like a good fit. And it was fun. I had a great boss. I'm still friends with her. But there was just a little something. I was kind of like, 
I remember looking at my boss and her boss and thinking, I don't want to be in those shoes. Mm. That's not really. Not what you wanted to do. Yeah. But it's a conundrum. Like, how do you know what you, I mean, some people have a passion and they know you had theater. It sounds like I, I didn't really know what I didn't know. Yeah. I was on that path early, like high school. I had an experience and was like, oh no, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Yes. But, but you forget, I think, or I forget now how rare that is. Right. I mean, people go through an enormous, uh, different experiences before they sort of find the thing. I read that you landed through your job there at Chanel. You had a modeling opportunity. Is that, was this your first, first, what was the model? What was the opportunity? What happened? (laughs) The director of advertising said, we're doing a photo shoot for like an in-house brochure. Do you want to? be in it. And I was like, okay. And the photographer said, which modeling agency are you with? And I was like, no, no, I'm not a model. I'm smart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then actually, and and I was like, I'm way too old. I was 26 by that time and I'm too short. And he was like, no, no, I thought you were. And it just planted a seed. And I thought, wait a second, could I be a model? Could I maybe make as much money as I'm making now and figure out what it is I want to do? And I was married at the time. We lived just, we, we rented somebody's basement apartment in a house in Bronxville. We had not much money at all, but I remember asking my husband and his cousin, who's like older and is kind of our mentor. I was like, what do you think I should do? is this crazy? And he said, why don't you go for it? I'll give you a temp job in our office. You're good at Excel. I'm good at Excel spreadsheets. And so, see, it's not as glamorous now. (laughs) So so I left Chanel and did part-time modeling and part-time Excel spreadsheeting. (laughs) Wow. Were you able to find like a a modeling agent pretty quickly? Okay. Yeah, I, that lucky, I was uh, with Wilhelmina in their New Faces division okay. saying I was 19 years old. Did you really? Yeah. You said you were 19? Yeah, because the agent was, the booking agent was, said, you don't look your age. If you say you're 26, they won't book you for junior jobs, but you won't book the whatever, mature things either. Right. Can't remember. Sophisticated, it's, sophisticated. They call it. You won't call. You won't book the sophisticated jobs either. So I said I was nineteen, and no one ever said anything. By the way, mm. I thought that was illegal, and I do mean well. Illegal. Now, now you can't ask somebody how old they you are. You can't ask somebody how old you are. No, but back you can then, look on Wikipedia. Yeah, but, but you can look on. It may yeah, not be true. It might not be true. Exactly. Right, but then you did you 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 announced how old you were. People asked all the time, "How old are you?" Yeah, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Or I did. I traveled and went to agencies. They knew, but they told clients that you were nineteen. Yeah, uh, and then you decide to enroll in an acting class. Yeah. So, but three years later, I just kept asking them with the agency, modeling agency. I'd love to take an acting class and. They were like, you got too much of an accent. You're too old. And I did commercials. Too old at 26. That's crazy. 
Go mm-hmm. ahead. And then I did I did commercials. Uh, then I just kept having this feeling inside. And I remember calling. I went on the phone book and called an acting teacher, and she said to me, "What do you What do you want?" And I don't know what I said, but she said, "I have a teacher for you." I don't know if you know Sandra Lee. You've yeah. heard that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. And she said she's really, really tough, but her class is amazing. They're working actors, and there's also, you know, people who are start starting out, and you should go check it out. And so I checked it out and I was blown away. And then I did my first monologue and I had what you just described when it was over. I was like, oh my God, I need to do this. And it didn't mean I need to do this as a profession, but it was just, I I love this. I am feeling like me for the first time. And that was that. Mm. And you wanted to work. I mean, like work on the craft, like taking classes yes. and oh. studying. Yes. Yes. She was serious. I mean, after that monologue, I did a scene. I remember a first scene work and she sent my partner back to his seat and she destroyed me because she was kind of like, who do you think you are? You can just waltz in here because you want to act. Let me tell you. This is a serious craft and you're not allowed to get up from your seat until I tell you. So you're just going to watch. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Wow. Did you find it difficult having a French accent initially working in the business? Yeah. And still to this day. And I worked with Sam Schwa. I don't know if you've heard his name before, but he was kind of a legend of a dialect coach in New York City. He worked with De Niro and uh, Julia Roberts. He was amazing. Um, I not only I had a French accent, I had a little lisp also. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, and I still work on my dialect. It's, I don't know, it, I feel like it's an, it's, it's, a lot of times I'm like, God, I wish I didn't have it. But then I'm like, well, if I didn't have it, maybe I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing either. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten cast either. I don't know. Like it differentiates you. Maybe. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. An early role for you, very early, you had the opportunity to work with this other up-and-coming actress, Meryl Streep. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, literally one of your first roles. So what was that experience like? For, were you a fan of hers beforehand? Yes. You yes. were. So do you remember a show called Unscripted? Yes. With Brian Greenberg? It yes. followed him as an actor. Yes, 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 yes. And then you see him. He got his first job, and it was a movie with Meryl Streep and Uma Thurman. Okay. Yes, I remember that now. Yes. And I'm I'm in the living room watching the thing with my husband. And I remember saying to him, God, could you imagine if my first studio film was with Meryl Streep? That would be amazing. And then like, I don't know, a couple months later, I get this audition to play opposite her. And the director is David Frankel. And that's my maiden name, Frankel. And I was like, maybe this is a sign. (laughs) And it was, I was really, I was obviously so excited and I put pictures of Meryl Streep all over my bathroom for three weeks leading up to it so that I would see her every day and I wouldn't be so starstruck when I did finally see her. <laughs> Is that true? Yes. 
you put up pictures to like make yourself familiar with looking at her? Yes, because I had to be this character who was, you know, her nemesis. Right. So I didn't want to feel like beginner me playing opposite one of the most incredible actress in the world. Um, She was unbelievable. Yeah. It was amazing to watch her work. I my role was really small, but I got I think three days, and there was one day where there was a lot of background. There was huge uh, set, and you know, turnaround took a long time, and she was just standing there with her makeup artist, who's been with her forever, and just trying to stay in sort of concentrated. And I remember. There was a lot of people, a lot of noise around her. And eventually she opened her eyes and she was like, okay, we need to find, get a room. <laughs> and, but it was, it was cool to watch her being so patient and yet also reach that point where I need to take care of myself. She was amazing. Generous with you. Uh, beyond, we did a flashback scene where there was no dialogue and it was supposed to be a French cafe in the morning. And I wrote her a card explaining the story of the unscripted thing before, because I just said, I just need you to know this and I will remember this forever. And she was very sweet. But before we started shooting, she said, does this look good to you, Stephanie? Does this feel like Paris? And and I was like, well, it's morning. There wouldn't be tablecloths on the bistro tables. And she goes, you're right. Let's go talk to David. (laughs) I love that. There you go. Wow. I love, see, I love, I love, I love stories like that. Uh, And I love generous actors who have accomplished a lot. For me, it's one of the best lessons that I ever, ever, I just told this story actually for the podcast, but I'll tell you very briefly that the experience that I had working with Robin Williams was very much the same way. We worked together a a few times and his energy and his positivity and his openness to basically get a note or have a comment from anybody and to make everybody feel good ultimately only helps the process. You know, unfortunately, I, I understand you've, you've worked with some people who weren't so nice. Uh, Steve Carell, um, (laughs) When you were saying Robin Williams generous, I, w- I was I was going to bring up Steve Carell because, yeah, as you know, I'm sure, but I I did this was my first lead female role in a big studio movie. I was very nervous again, and I did a scene with Steve, and he so it's we always shoot his close up first and. The lines he was giving me was kind of like, I know about the sex. And my character was like, the sex? Yes, I know about the sex. So we shoot his coverage and then we get on my coverage. And, you know, he's like, I know about the sex. And so I'm reacting probably the same way, kind of. And all of a sudden he goes, yeah, I know about the sex, the dirt. And he started getting filthy. I mean, I can't even repeat what he was saying. (laughs) And I remember looking at him and and thinking, oh my gosh, he's doing this just to get me to react the way, I mean, so generous. And he's very discreet too. He's, but it's all about the work and for all of us to come together 
Yes. And and do something beautiful and have fun and play and surprise ourselves. I mean, it was amazing to watch him. It is. And, and there's no ego. He has no ego. <laughs> yes. No, I he absolutely is the best. I'm I have to ask so you, when you say discreet, I'm wondering if that's a if that's a French expression. So do you mean he's very reserved? Yes. Is that what you is that what you mean? Yes. Yes, yes that's what I meant. Yeah. Yes. I, and people are surprised like he's not perf- he's not performing all the time. Mm-mm. Like you see him on set. He is no. very reserved, discreet and gentle. Very gentle as too. a per as a person. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Kind. Yes. He's the He's... opposite of me in every way in life. <laughs> He's the opposite of me. But you both have a big heart that comes you can it comes through. Oh well, that's wow, that's very nice. But I, I don't know about that. He certainly does. And I uh I'm glad that you had a positive experience working with him. Um how do you think that these experiences early on working on quite big movies sort of helped to shape you and your career as you had positive experiences in classes, you worked hard to become an actor and you have the experience of working with these people. I just talk a little bit about that and how that changes you or how it makes you grow as an actor to then move on and begin, you know, leading up projects of your own. I mean, those experiences that's, that you're grateful for, not only because of who the caliber of the actor, but really about their generosity and kindness when they, they don't really need to do that. I think those experiences stay with you. And for me, I know that that's how I want to be with people when I work with them. Um, yeah. It's really such a privilege to be working on a set, to tell stories that are beautifully written, stories that have meaning. And to me, there's nothing more of a turn on than when you really connect with that person on set. Mm. And it's weird because you're doing it playing somebody else, but yet you just, I think we're, we are more open for me, more open than in real life. I don't know that to to share that moment with others, to be available with others, is the biggest gift. So it's not just to be generous with others; it's actually you're making, you're living something, kind of selfishly good for you too. <laughs> yeah, um, I've told this a couple of times. One of my guests on the podcast talked about the unique experience of working on a set in that way, and said that it's the only time in life, really where you have a huge number of people all working for the same end purpose at once. It is like sports in a way where Mm. from the time you call action to cut, everyone is doing their job to try to accomplish this one thing. Everybody's on the same page and is working together to try to make the best thing that you can. I love that. That is yeah. exactly, yes. And it's bigger than all everybody. of us, everybody. Yes. And it has meaning. And, and you trust because of that, you're actually, you feel this trust. Even the crew, when you're in the middle of a scene, you feel the, you know, behind the camera and you're like, you've got my back and you know it. It's really beautiful. 
Yes. Once the director calls cut, then the backbiting starts and all that. But yeah. so, but it, so it's just those few moments between action and it's, cut. It's <laughs> just those few moments. Other than that, yeah. An actor, an actor. I were. Oh, I can say his name, James Rodé Rodriguez, who I really am a big fan of. On my last show, before action, he would look at me and he would go, "Make it interesting. Come on, <laughs> do something interesting." <laughs> Is that all you got? Make it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I I do this. <laughs> Maybe we're very similar because I do the same. I do this. I start, I started. I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud. I've never I've never actually acknowledged this bit that I do. But I will look at someone and just say, just right before, just be like. Don't fuck it up, please. <laughs> just don't. Don't fuck it up. All right. We're all, everybody's here waiting on you. Just don't. Anyway. So get it together. Get it together, get it. please. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos 
in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In more recent years, you've been doing more work in television. Do you prefer one or the other? Is that just where roles have come in television? Do you prefer one over the other? Um, no, I don't think I prefer, but I do love movies. I still love to watch mm. as an audience. Right. Uh, and I kind of love having one script and knowing there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I have a family. It's This is for this amount of time. This amount of time you dive in. Yeah. 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 I meant to ask you this before, actually, and, and I'm a- going to ask it now because I'm just personally interested. So you you don't speak English. You I are a fan not. of movies. Are you watching? Are you watching exclusively French movies? Oh, or are you watching American movies that are subtitled or duh? Like I just I don't know. I'm just curious about that. Or, how did you did you watch American movies? I guess is one. Yes, but the French television is horrible. Everything is dubbed. Right. Which drove my dad crazy because we watched a lot of American movies. And he was like, Gene Hackman, this is not Gene Hackman. Right, right, right. Right. (laughs) Or John Wayne. Like, we watched a lot of movies. And it's so weird because just in Luxembourg, Belgium, they uh, or Holland, they have uh, subtitles. They keep things in original. Yeah. Even in the movie theater, like, could you watch American movies in a movie theater or was it yes. all dubbed? In the movie theaters, they had two screenings. One was okay. in version originale, original version, and one was uh, dubbed. Interesting. Yeah, I asked because I wondered, you know, even though you you didn't have any thought of being an actor at that time or whatever, but if there was, a, if there would be some sort of unique experience i don't know and maybe i'm reading into this but i i feel like now and there's been some obviously beautiful beautiful what we would call in america foreign films that you're reading the subtitles but i feel like you're also getting i feel like i get something different Mm -hmm. from the performances and watching the actors when yes. I'm not fully clear on, uh, well, when I don't understand the language at all, have you, have you, wait a have, second. I really want to make sure I understand. You feel like you get more when it's in the original version with subtitles. Well, certainly that, but I mean, even a language that I don't speak. Yeah. And I'm going to mention this because I can't, I just saw drops of God, which is Japanese and French and English. And there's something. There's something different performance-wise in all of the characters in their native tongues together that bring this beautiful sort of tapestry, and I, I, it's it's hard to I can't I can't quite articulate it clearly right now, but there was something very powerful for for me seeing these actors who are speaking Japanese and acting obviously in Japanese. They're actors and they're speaking Japanese. And me not knowing, having to read the words, but also just watching them perform 
there is a different, I get it's just it. different. Yeah, I just, I want to watch that movie, but I just watched a German show and for some reason it came on dubbed and oh. we were like, wait, what is it? Wait a second. And and then, <laughs> so we went back and put it in, in German and it, it was night and day. Yes. But also the, it's a thing. It's like this even, it, and more when I don't speak German. So it's almost like that becomes... When you don't speak the language, it's an, not a character, but it's an added color. It's it yes. yeah, it adds. It's weird. It's hard to articulate, yes. but I know. I think I understand what you're saying. Yes, there's. It's almost like there's a. You you begin to see, and now we're referring back sort of to Jacques Lecoq, but there is a different mask that exists, not just in character types or archetypes but also in language, in culture. Like there is a different mask that people wear when they communicate and how they communicate is very different in different cultures. So it's more culture than language. But when you're seeing actors speak in their native tongue, it's just interesting to me. It opens up maybe something uh, different in us. Kind of like if we hear an instrument that we've never heard before, Yes. That's going to hit us in a different way. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And as you said, also, I mean, even if you don't understand the colloquialisms or or whatever, like you're experiencing the, some of those things or humor or lack thereof just by ex- watching people, even if you're not fully don't understand the cultural reference or whatever. Je pense yeah. français comme un vache espagnol. Um, yeah. So you mentioned you like working in movies, but you did just act for a long time on a television show. I think I prefer television because I love the building of community that if you're lucky enough, that can happen over several years. Uh, what was it like for you to just have the opportunity to work on something for such an extended period of time? Yeah, it's so true. That was amazing. It was an ensemble show too which was my first time ever doing that. And I have, I think, I hope, knock on wood, lifelong friendships. And also I worked with kids, seeing these kids grow up and transform as actors. I got better as an actor because of the people I was working with. It's true in a movie, you sort of do it and then it's over. And it's almost understood that you get so close so quickly, you share a lot. And there's always this space and, you know, that, oh, I shared this moment. I, if I called this person, we'd probably be really happy to see one another. But we haven't spoken to one another in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Whereas for this, and and I was not on, this show was on for five years. I was not on it. I was limited during COVID. But uh, I saw one person just today. She, 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 oh. she was like, I'm driving by. Should I come? I'm like, yes. Oh, that's awesome. In addition to being busy in television, you've got a book, book alert, uh, your book, uh, Selfish, just out. I mean, hot off of the presses. Tell me about the book and where where does this come from? It's, it's not as glamorous as a book. It's a self-help workbook. <laughs> I'm going to try to not sell this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's, I think it's a fascinating mental health fitness 
is what I understand. That's right. Which I think is a kind of a genius way of approaching this. Yeah. Tell me why. Look, I'm extremely proud of this book. And the way it came about is because uh, you heard me say before a lot, I was nervous. I was this. And it's as my career got, you know, gained momentum, my mental game coming from the sports world and golf really went downhill and self-doubt just took over. And it impacted not only my performance, but also the way I related to people and how I felt. And so it led me on this path of growing and learning skills and practices. But the challenge was for me, how do I remember these um, how do I remember these practices and how do I put them into action in my daily life? So I created a little album on my phone. I call it a playbook. Playbook. A playbook, just yeah. like athletes have playbooks. Yeah. And in it, you know, I'll put everything that's going to help me for this day, whether it's on set. I have a playbook for golf with my, you know, my swing thoughts, my some of my great golf achievements to remind me, yeah, I, I can kick ass on the golf course. Yeah. So for the past five years, this was mostly for a professional, but for the past five years, be, before I would go on set, I would look at my playbook and it would refresh all these things. And then when I'd go on set, if doubt started creeping in or all of a sudden I'm worried about what James Rodé Rodriguez is saying to me, <laughs> my little right. reminder from my playbook pops into my consciousness and it's like, yeah. I don't care what other people think. Uh, I'm making it hokey. But it really made all the good thoughts, helpful thoughts. It kept them top of mind and helped me react, respond differently during the day. And during COVID, when we were all on lockdown, um, Given Hour, which is a mental health nonprofit, called me. They had a new CEO and a new team, and they wanted to get to know me and asked what I did for my well-being. I said all the things I do. And I said, one thing that's unique is this playbook concept that I have. Uh, and they were like, what's in your playbook? And I was like, well, it's personal. You know, everybody would have different things in their playbook, but they love this concept. And we did a series of webinars to bring it to their community to encourage people during COVID to create their own playbook. The question kept coming up what goes in your playbook? And somebody suggested we create a workbook that would help people create their own playbooks. This is a little tongue twister. And (laughs) that's where this workbook came from. And I created it with a mental health nonprofit. We've had the help of mental health professionals. It's got, it got amazing accolades from behavioral scientists and psychologists. And I'm really proud of it. It's a work of collaboration. There are stories in there from veterans and athletes and people in recovery. And then there's exercises for you to discover the things that help you do life a little better. Yeah. You talk about give an hour. I know 50% of the proceeds are going to give an hour. That relationship, the work that they do obviously is, is very important to you. Yes. Their mission is to build more resilient communities through whether they're physical communities. So people who've been impacted by violence, but also communities like the military, they offer one-on-one counseling uh, at no cost and peer support training and training and education. They're amazing. And, and the people in the book, one person, Alan Levi Simmons is a veteran and he got help from given hour. His story is amazing. You talk about experiencing something that I think 
if people are honest, a lot of people either feel or experience or suffer from uh, imposter syndrome. Both it's a bit of in, a buzzword right now, right? It's in good. acting and in life. Well, but I think it's true. I mean, I don't even know officially what the definition of that is, but I know that everybody is performing at all times. It's sort of what I was talking about before in terms of everybody from action to cut is all working together. The rest of the time, I feel like there are thoughts that are going on in your head about not being, not belonging or not being a part or faking it or all of those things. You said you suffered from it. Is the book something that you feel like would have helped you? Yeah. So all the exercises in there are exercises that have helped me. Yeah. And they're all put together. Um, it's so cool to hear you say that. <laughs> but well, our, our minds can be tricky fuckers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I just got a, a card today from one a psychologist who helped on the book. And I sent him the book to say thank you. And I got a thank you card. And in the back, it said, P.S., I too suffer from imposter syndrome. I would like to talk about this. And I think the definition of it is that you feel like once you're in this situation and you feel like you actually don't belong here, you're not, right. you have not earned the right to be there for your work, you're not qualified, and you're going to be found out. They're going to realize that yeah. they made a mistake by asking <laughs> you to be there. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Is there one tip or one exercise from the book, from your playbook that you, that you can share with me? Related to imposter syndrome? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's the first exercise, which is called, what are your greatest achievements? Okay. And that's it. We give you one question and you're on your own. No. <laughs> <laughs> we really spoon feed like the questions little by little. And so your greatest achievements can be uh, things you're proud of in your life, but they can also be actually things you look back and you're like, that was... A, a huge challenge for me. Uh, I didn't think I was going to make it through and somehow I did. For example, for me, freshman year in college, like right. I was saying, before this exercise, I wouldn't have looked at it as a greatest achievement. It would be, that was kind of a failure. I went home, I cried every day. But doing that exercise, I realized, wait a second, actually, I did stay till the full year. I learned a lot. I persisted. Uh, I worked hard. And then I came back. I also listen to myself. So you make a list of all your greatest achievements. And then it asks you, look at each one of them and ask yourself, what actually helped me get to there through, through it or the win or whatever? So you can identify some of your strengths. You can identify the people who helped you along the way. You can see that you are generous. Actually, one of your greatest achievements is helping others. So it's like you're building your own little highlight reel. You know, this is your chance. Yes. And you're not showing this to anyone. It's not about bragging. I think a lot of times, especially when we're going through tough times, we are not, we forget what we're capable of. Let's say I, you have your greatest, uh, or I, I'll talk about me. <laughs> I have my greatest achievements. Then I'm in a moment, uh, which I experience all the time, imposter syndrome, you know, oh my God, I'm going to talk with Brian about my book and Brian's in theater and I don't know theater and what am I going to talk about? I can look at my greatest achievements and I'm like, hey, it's okay. I've done a lot of work. 
this is what helps me. Uh, I don't need to have it figured out. I don't need to pretend that I have it all figured out. I'm just going to be myself. I actually know how to do that. Yeah, I like so, that. So, and and then they each exercise links into one another because there's one about self-talk. So it's about creating. You know, this isn't the SNL. Uh, right. <laughs> where you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I am great. I'm. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's about creating your own self-talk that's based in your own life that you actually believe in. Uh, you know, yeah, I actually worked really hard on my acting career. I took classes for that many years and maybe I still feel like I don't have it all figured out. Good. I'm freaking humble. Right. <laughs> I still right. have a lot to learn. Right. No, I love that. Getting to know and being comfortable with what you've done and who you are yourself. Mm-hmm. I I love yeah. that. I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I would probably brag. Once I figured it out, I would probably brag. I wouldn't keep it to myself. But, you know. I don't know. I think if you read the book, you might not. You might not. Oh, gosh. Because the second we do talk about things, really share things, we're in back to Jacques Lecoq. We put on a mask. Yes. And this is really about, this is just for you. We live, everything is so public. You know, we have big opinions and we share everything. This is just a space for you. Yeah. But you know what's interesting? And again, I'm really not just trying to tie it all together. I think if nothing else, what everything you said just, means to me in this moment is it's really about taking off the mask at least with yourself Mm -hmm. because i think that that's the problem is oftentimes i mean we all have a mask when we interact with everybody i mean your mask is different depending on who you're interact you know whether it's your buddies or your girlfriends or your spouses or your mom and dad or whatever but then this feels to me like taking the mask off at least when by when we're by ourselves and being true and real which is so important yeah and but which can be scary too oh hell yeah are you kidding yeah me looking at my actual self jesus but then when you do you get to this place of compassion and understanding with yourself and and then you you realize wait a second what what's really important to me is this and right unless you go deep down we can get sidetracked and and worried about the mask and what other people are going to think and and all that and when we are comfortable with ourselves then we can connect better with others around us absolutely you know in a way sorry i didn't mean to get so excited but in acting, when we prepare, what we hope for when we, from action to cut, is to be truthful, to uh, listen, to connect, really be open, present. present. Yes. yes. So in a way, all these exercises, I looked at them and I was like, these would be great exercise to do character development, right. except it's your own character. <laughs> right. But it's, yeah, but the opposite, right? The the trying to find the absence of of creating that character that is you in your in your mind you know what i mean like attempting to strip it down and be truth truthful bringing yourself to the part yeah even if you yeah even as you say when i made the stupid joke but that you don't share it with anybody that that at least in that moment 
that is truth. Yes. It's so liberating. I love that. I love that. Well done. I'm getting the book this afternoon, by the way, because it is available now. Selfish Step into a Journey of Self-Discovery to Revive Confidence, Joy, and Meaning. Stephanie, congratulations on the book, on your career, on finally finding what you were meant to be and what brings you joy. You were so delightful to talk to and such a radiant, joyful spirit. So thank you for being at least as open as possible as you could with me You're today. the best interviewer. Thank you so much, oh. Brian. And let's play golf. Oh, for sure. We're playing golf. I know you interviewed one of the persons who I played uh, in the Ryder Cup, uh, AJ Hawk. So. Oh, you played with AJ? Well, I didn't play with him, but it, we were there the same. Oh, you were against each other. I, no, I He's played against idiot. Kelly Slater. <laughs> He's an He's idiot. He's so cool. He's AJ is an idiot. He hits the ball a long way. Here's the problem. He doesn't know where it's going. He doesn't. Oh, he has no idea shit. where it. Oh, he has no idea. He hits it far. Hit C ball. Hit ball far. Long way off the planet. He almost killed me a couple of times hitting into me. I wasn't even playing his group. That's how just hits it. All right. We're going to do it. We're going to bet right. big money and you're going to give me lots of strokes because you're a five. Um, I'll bet you some French francs. <laughs> French francs. I don't think you can. Can you? I don't. You can't spend the. You, you can't get that over on me. You can't spend those anymore. <laughs> I know that. Stephanie, thank you. So, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Stephanie, merci beaucoup. As they say in France, that means thank you very much. I love getting to know you today, learning about your incredibly fascinating journey. And yes, next time you're in SoCal or I'm on the East Coast, we're going to get together. We're going to hit the golf course. Just bring your money. Listeners, you should definitely go pick up her book, Selfish, right now. It is literally for your own good. And then come back next time for another episode of Off the Beat. Until then, everybody, have an excellent week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Ali Amir Sahid. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.